I watched her tomb each night since she was interred three days ago, the night she ventured out for the first time. Holmwood, I know your one wish is that Lucy should rest in peace. I promise to fulfill that wish, but first, if I have your consent, she can lead us to Dracula. How can you suggest such a thing, that she should be possessed by this evil for another second? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Nicole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are kicking off Halloween with episode 59. We're back to Cole's choice. What did you choose? I chose what is for me the crown jewel of all vampire films, Horror of Dracula from 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher and starring Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Michael Guff, Melissa Stribling, and Carol Marsh, written by Jimmy Sangster and adapted very, very loosely from the Bram Stoker novel. Now, full disclosure, I haven't read Dracula in its entirety, but do you think that there is such a dramatic reading that exists as the one that I gave in our playlist? (laughs) Nothing even close. Michael Guff on his best day could not convey the feelings that you conveyed in our opening playlist. Why, thank you, sir. Now, should we even bother to give a synopsis of this one? It's Dracula, you know. Right. Everyone knows the story. And even though you mentioned this is loosely based on the novel, Jimmy Sangster played pretty fast and loose with a lot of the details, but it's not as though... He's radically changed the story that much so that Dracula is no longer Dracula. All of the pieces are there. Let's Well, a lot of the pieces are there, let's say. (laughs) And some of the names are still there, although they seem to belong to completely different people, or those people have completely swapped places with other people. That's true. But at any rate, long undead count, vampire hunter Van Helsing, you know the drill. Now you kick this off by saying that this is your favorite vampire film, and we're definitely not doing the Lugosi Dracula, so is this an even bigger favorite for you than that one? It is. This is the definitive Dracula story for me, for a number of reasons. It's such a milestone of the genre. First vampire film in color. First time fangs appear on screen. The iconic pairing of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Not to slight Lugosi, and I love those Universal monster movies. We'll talk about that a lot, probably. But Browning's Dracula is a little stiff and shows some of the hallmarks of transitioning from silent film to sound. And the supporting cast leaves a little to be desired in the 1931 version, minus the excellent Dwight Fry as Renfield, which we are cheated out of in this. We don't get a Renfield in this one. I'll talk more about all this at the end when we do our wrap-up, but it is huge on the vampire landscape, and definitely my favorite. I will say that the Lugosi Dracula, that universal version, is the one in that universal collection that I can't get through. I don't go back to watch it again and again like I do with The Invisible Man or The Wolf Band. I have a soft spot for it. I have a real affection for it. The one in that collection I don't go back to very often is The Phantom of the Opera, because I don't exactly think of Nelson Eddy as synonymous with classic horror. That's true, and I also just think of that story in general as being full of drips. In that case, I don't think they're ever going to match the Lon Chaney version for me. 
Well, how about we get right into this where the only drips come from the blood? <laughs> get it? I do. And that happens right off the bat, right here in this title sequence, basically. Immediately, we have established this theme, this motif in the score. And it reminds me a little bit of The Creature from the Black Lagoon in that it's this dissonant brass three-note theme that we'll hear over and over again that basically says, Dracula. Whereas The Creature from the Black Lagoon is more like, Black Lagoon. <laughs> Peter Cushing gets top billing. And I thought the strange thing, well, it's not strange at the time, I guess, but strange to think of it now after as iconic a performance as this is, Christopher Lee, fourth billing. But opening titles roll, and we zoom in to the Dracula family crypt, and we get this drip that you mentioned. An explosion of this Kensington gore, this stage blood that Hammer Films was notable for using. Bright crimson splash. The brightest red that seems to exist in the world. It was made for Technicolor. Kensington gore is a term that I've heard forever, but I didn't really know where it came from. And it ends up being a pun on the London streets that it's based on. But we now know it as this trademark for the fake blood that was used in films and theater. And it was manufactured by a retired British pharmacist, John Tynegate, during the 60s and 70s. And you could get it in all kinds of different shades and textures and levels of viscosity. You can still find the basic recipe for his formula online. And note, mint added for taste. So does that mean that this Halloween we're going to be pulling that recipe up? <laughs> we could. A little splash of color never hurts. Actually, that makes me think of something that I put in my notes about the black and white versus color thing. Like I mentioned, I'm a sucker for the old Universal classics as well. Those are the first things that introduced me to monster movies. Creature from the Black Lagoon in particular was my gateway to all of this. First one I ever saw. So in my heart, I think of these movies as black and white movies. And this was such a shock, this bright Technicolor vampire, when I saw it the first time. And I'm still a little conflicted by it, even though it is such a milestone, like I mentioned. Are these stories better told in monochrome? I think essentially that I just have to take this one on its own merits, at face value, because my favorite moments in this are with the use of hmm. color. And I'll be sure to point them out when we get there, but to me... They use that color to really emphasize the erotic, psychosexual elements, specifically when they're used in women's costuming and makeup. And I have such a hard time thinking that I would respond to it in the same way if it were in black and white. I know what you mean, because especially for me, Christopher Lee's appearance when his eyes are filled with blood and he is in a rage, out of control, there's no way that would have looked as great in black and white, but I still am on the fence because I think the comparison that's apt here is film noir. We have neo-noir, and certainly there are some excellent films in that genre, films that I love dearly, but it's just not the same, right? Shadows of Venetian blinds do not look the same in color. That is an excellent point as well. I still think, though, I could have experienced those stories in the same way. They might even look grimier and grosser and greasier, especially some of those late period, really low budget noirs, if they had been in color. And I'm not trying to advocate for colorization in the, you know, classic TBS mold or something like that. And I don't have to have something in color in order to 
respond to it. I just think that this one works so well and feels so modern and fresh in color in a way that I don't think could have been achieved in black and white. There seems to be a level of maturity and even more meta-references to me when it's in color. That does remind me just a bit of one of the things we pointed out in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Steven Soderbergh had taken it upon himself to create a version of that film that was in black and white so you could focus on the framing. Maybe some intrepid viewer would take this and put it in black and white so we could compare the two. Well, it's definitely a more modern Castle Dracula than the 1931 version, which was festooned with cobwebs. This is actually well-kept. Dracula's family crest hanging on the wall. Faithful in death is what that translates to, by the way. From the exterior, it almost looks like if you were in The Sound of Music and turned your head slightly to the left, you would have seen this off in the mountains. <laughs> Good point. Well, I really love that very first image that we see, which is of that stonework eagle. It looks bigger than me. And I think it sets the tone for how imposing everything and every person will be. Except one. By the way, I love the eagle too, because it has a lineage on down through later films as well. Burn Witch Burn, a.k.a. Night of the Eagle, and also Suspiria even has a similar device. But that odd man out that I mentioned here, Jonathan Harker. Not an imposing figure. To me, Jonathan Harker always has to be ineffectual. Agreed. It would not work if he were virile and capable. If they cast you as Harker, that old chestnut, if you look around the room and there is no Jonathan Harker, you are Jonathan Harker. Uh-oh. But he shows up tromping through the woods at Castle Dracula. Again, cheating us out of one of my favorite, more iconic moments, the Dracula as coachman sequence to get him to Castle Dracula when no one else would pick him up. Sangster really cut down and condensed. They packed a lot of stuff into it, but they also left a lot of things out. 82-minute running time, super short, but geared to emphasize a brisk pace and a lot of action. Because truly, at the end of the day, who wants to spend more time with Jonathan Harker? Not me. And he makes terrible decisions from start <laughs> to quick finish. The first one of those even going to Castle Dracula. But more specifically, I think, keeping a diary in the man's own home in which he is outlining how he is going to destroy him. He quickly meets a woman who is begging for help, begging to be released. And he seems fairly sanguine about it. Get it? <laughs> Get it. You know I hate puns, but I can't resist in this. This is always where color, especially in the films of the 50s and 60s, always lose me. It has always bothered me. It always set off a sensor, even when I was a really small child. I could spot, okay, that woman has actually very short hair and is wearing extensions, and the colors don't quite match. And one's hair color never matches one's eyebrow color. And one's makeup seems to be geared to the most garish effect possible. And wasn't anybody noticing? She's undead. Give her a break. Would you care? I guess if I was waiting to get my fangs out at any second, I probably wouldn't notice. Not like she can look in a mirror and check it. Good point. Which reminds me. Most of the vampire rule conventions are adhered to in this one. Sunlight, the crucifix, garlic. But one feature that stands out to me when we see this exterior shot of Castle Dracula, a river runs directly in front of the entryway. Traditionally, vampires are not able to cross running water. And this seems like 
really bad feng shui for a vampire. <laughs> There's one other element that they point out that doesn't apply here, which is that Dracula doesn't turn into other creatures like a bat, for example. And for me, I love that because I think it means that he actually has to be smarter than everyone else. It also means that Hammer didn't have the practical effects budget, is what I think is some <laughs> of that. That's a good point. In addition to bad feng shui, I also noticed that the stairwell and the landing, no railings anywhere. Dracula is not safety conscious. OSHA would be all over him. Well, speaking of Dracula, as we are, we next see him in this scene, and he is absolutely enormous. And what I love, apart from that interior set design, they use those twisty columns that Hammer loves so much. You'll see them in other films as well is that Jonathan has remarked upon how much colder it is once he does cross that threshold. And you actually see the actor's breath, which means that it was roughly 45 degrees when they were filming. And imagine what that must have been like. Well, Hammer shot stuff on the cheap. So again, is that just that they couldn't afford to pay an expensive heating bill at Bray Studios? I like to think that it was on purpose to really give atmosphere, but I think you're probably right. Well, we've mentioned Bray Studios and Hammer Films now a few times. Do you mind if I get into a little bit of the history of Hammer for those who are not quite as aware of it as others? I love it. I can't wait to talk about it. Well, Hammer Studios was established, and it's always been sort of a budget operation, back in 1934. And they made all kinds of films for two decades. Sci-fi, thrillers, film noir, comedies in the mold of Ealing, but what they are most notable for and most well-known for are a series of horror films that they made from the late 50s until the late 70s. They moved into Bray Studios, where they shot the majority of these, in 1951, and they stayed there until 1966. In their own little compound, that became basically a factory that churned out these types of movies one after another after another. Some of the greatest horror films of all time. A couple of Quatermass adaptations, one for television, were sort of the springboard for this edging into a film called X the Unknown. They were sort of sci-fi horror hybrids. And when they figured out, wait a minute, there's an audience for this, combined with the fact that they had acquired somewhat complicated rights to the Universal properties, they started on this track of classic monster movies. It's those sci-fi hybrids that you mentioned. That's how I first got into them, because it fits right into that Atomic Age period that I love so much. Quatermass in the Pit from 1967 is probably my favorite of all of those. That one is fantastic, especially. But like I said, these were a springboard from this hybrid into straight horror with The Curse of Frankenstein. This was the real eureka moment for them. For the producers that saw there is money to be made here. I know that I often deride that whole thing of going to the well once too often when it comes to, oh, we see this worked once, let's do it again and again. But if they had not done that for these, both Universal and then again Hammer 20 plus years later, we would have missed out on a lot of great horror films. And what would later be seen as innovations or hallmarks of the Hammer horror style were basically just attempts to avoid copyright infringement on these Universal properties. <laughs> but all of those things added up to big box office and Christopher Lee made such an impression in his first film for Hammer as Frankenstein's monster. And Peter Cushing was Victor Frankenstein in this, and it was their first film co-starring together. They would later go on to make together over 20 films and become incredibly close friends. Much of what I read about them, they have such wonderful things to say about each other. 
Peter Cushing is one of my favorite screen figures on and off of all time. He seems like the sweetest, most genuine, honest person, even about things in his life that later were less than pleasant. It seemed like you could always count on Peter Cushing to tell you the truth, on screen and off. That's what I connected most to about him reading about what he said after the death of his wife and being incredibly honest about attempting suicide afterwards as well. And of that same note, I find Christopher Lee such an interesting, fascinating person. He was so well-read, so well-traveled. He spoke many, many languages. He did so many things throughout his life. He truly loved Peter Cushing and had beautiful, wonderful things to say about their friendship, especially after he lost his friend. But here, they make their classic pairing of adversaries. And much to Lee's chagrin somewhat, became Dracula for all time. A little typecast, a little dogged by the character, much like Lugosi was. Couldn't get away from it. He intended this to be his last horror film and the last time he ever played this character, but it definitely did not work out that way. Now, do you remember a time when you did not know the name Dracula and the significance of it? Absolutely not. I remember watching the In Search Of episode on Dracula (laughs) way back when. I feel like I've known who he was since birth. Because I was especially thinking of that when he is absent from the dinner and he leaves a note for Harker with instructions and at the bottom it simply signs Dracula. Much the same way we would sign it Long or Rolaine. And it just means nothing. And at some point, prior to Stoker's novel, that word would have had zero meaning to anyone. It's fascinating to me to think about that. And that he reads this note and doesn't run screaming from the room, and also somehow thinks that he is going to be able to kill Dracula. Which is another of Sangster's changes to Stoker's source material. He is not a real estate agent there to sell him Carfax Abbey, Nor is he the librarian that he says he is. He is a secret spy vampire killer, working in conjunction with Van Helsing to rid the earth of this plague. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work (laughs) right at this moment. You don't send in a Harker to do a Van Helsing's job. And he manages to make several mistakes and terrible choices and take way too much time to do what he came there to do. So this version of Harker does know Dracula's deal. But, suspending disbelief, we don't. And this is our first meeting with Dracula, when he appears after dinner. At first, we simply see him as this gigantic figure in black, in shadow. One of the things that Sangster actually kept from Stoker's novel, no color anywhere in Dracula's costume. That iconic red lining of the cape that we think of did not exist. And then... He immediately does this wonderful thing, which is come down the stairs and speak like a gentleman. Well, he is aristocracy, after all. Just aristocracy that eats people. Well, if you're smart, you have to go with that first view and think, uh, this is the real person. This guy who is speaking quite softly and genuinely, uh, no, that's just a ruse to trick me into dropping my guard. Is that Maya Angelou thing of when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Counts for vampires, too. It doesn't take long before he reveals himself for who he really is, especially in this super fast-paced dynamic version of this story. Not much later, Harker is in the library and encounters Dracula's bride again, unbeknownst to him at the time, who is pleading for his help to be taken away from here. Harker is as big a sucker as ever, holds her close, and we have that great close-up of her fixated on his juggler vein. 
she bites him, but almost immediately after that, Dracula appears again. He's a beast at this point. Blood on his mouth, on his fangs, and ready to attack him, and he is no match for Dracula. This is our first inkling that this is not your father's Dracula. His eyes are filled with blood, and he leaps across the table in a manner that we have never seen a vampire behave before. And this isn't like in Taken 3, where they had to make <laughs> 95,000 cuts in order to have Liam Neeson go over a fence. You can tell that he is doing this. He is a vital and powerful man. He was basically a whole new monster. This is where 20th century vampires began in cinema. Before that, you only had that aristocratic, cape-held-up-over-the-face-hypnotic version of Dracula. Lee is just as aristocratic and charming as any of those characters. Maybe all of them put together. And much better looking as well, even with the unibrow. But there was none of this slow, stalking Dracula. Again, which is closer to Stoker's idea of the character. He doesn't ingratiate himself with society the way Lugosi's Dracula does. He's more a sinister force on the fringes, surreptitiously wreaking sexual havoc everywhere he goes. And I especially like that he has so few lines in this, so he has to make his presence felt. Does he ever? And not even screen time, though, now that you say that. Only seven minutes of screen time total. So this new streamlined Dracula with a V8 under the hood is more than a match for Jonathan Harker, and Harker is subdued and taken back to his room, loses a day, and time is of the essence. And because he has been bitten and time is running out, as you mentioned, he is trying to kill Dracula and the bride before his time runs out. He makes another dumb decision. He kills the bride first. I love the introduction to this scene. In the voiceover, he specifically says, I don't have much time, and then proceeds to leisurely, as, and I can't stress this enough, make his way around the crypt, checking out the lay of the land, just seeing who's hanging out. Soulfully examining things. <laughs> he does not act like someone for whom time is short. And with that kill, which I love it reduces the bride to an old crone, he manages to wake up Dracula. Duh, dummy. And as he looks away and then looks back into Dracula's tomb, Dracula is gone. And then again with that same speed, Dracula's in the doorway above him. And we know it's all over for Jonathan Harker at this point. And it's those uses of dissolves and cuts. We don't actually see what happens to Jonathan next. We just see that door closing and we know what's going to happen. The one moment that is my favorite in that entire sequence is when... Christopher Lee is still laying in the coffin and he looks up to the window to see the sun go down and that slight smile comes across his face. Nighttime is my time. In this second act, we see a whole lot of Sangster's changes to the source material. Some that work in its favor and some that, for me, work against it. Mainly in the sense that we're cheated out of another one of the things that I love the most. This is a landlocked version of this story and so we don't have Dracula crossing the ocean. And we miss out on that great image of the derelict ship drifting into port with the captain lashed to the wheel after Dracula has eliminated an entire crew. Instead, what we have is Van Helsing going to where the action is. Peter Cushing shows up at the inn where Harker had stayed just previous to visiting the castle, and the innkeepers are a superstitious lot. Garlic flowers hung everywhere. 
No one wants to speak of this evil. And it's revealed to us that Harker and Van Helsing were a super vampire fighting team. And the helpful barmaid, Inga, slips him the diary of Harker that she found and has hidden even though she was told to destroy it. One thing that I do like that this landlocked version gives us is that it ties it to a lot of the classic Universal films. In that the backdrop, like so many of those, for instance Frankenstein and so many of its sequels, this village, this backdrop, is very Teutonic. In the late 30s, I know how that worked in terms of what the world was afraid of. But I don't think as a backdrop it functions the same way here. We don't have those same fears about Germany in this Cold War period. So why do you think they adhere to that? I don't have the answer, and I wonder if it goes back to the point you were making earlier. Was it a budget decision to put everyone in the same general space to condense down on time, make everything work more quickly because they don't have to travel such long distances, and also then maybe not have a separation of some of the characters as other? Well, a sea voyage would certainly be expensive to stage. I can see them leaving that out for that purpose. I tend to think, though, that the subconscious creeps into these things and none of these decisions are made in a vacuum. It makes me think about these points we're going to get into about these sexual erotic elements. And so it becomes less about deflowering an English rose by this evil Eastern European beast and more about bringing out something that's already inside of all of them. So you're saying Germans are inherently freaky. Which I don't dispute. Yeah, we all know that to be the case. And that's why we love them. I've got the internet. I've seen things. <laughs> One of the big improvements of this is the shift that Sangster made to focus on Van Helsing as the protagonist rather than Harker. From here on, it is Van Helsing's story. He arrives at the castle too late. Stakes Harker, or so it's implied. Notice in this version with the ramped up erotic nature that was another of Hammer's hallmarks. On screen, we only see the women get staked. Only Lucy and the Bride of Dracula are penetrated by this phallic object. It's not shown with Harker, though it's implied, and Dracula does not go out that way. What I appreciate the most, and why I think Peter Cushing is so wonderful and such a great choice, there always has to be someone who is ready to face the hard decisions, and that's Van Helsing. To be fair, Edward Van Sloan is also that character, though in the 1931 version, he is a super crusty old man. More of a German Spencer Tracy in that case. He doesn't go around wearing these burgundy crushed velvet suits, I'll tell you that. Dang it, I was saving that because that is my <laughs> favorite. The crushed velvet burgundy smoking jacket and matching vest. Mm -hmm. He's quite the dapper Dan. Now Van Helsing goes back to the Homewoods and does not want to explain how Harker died. He's trying to keep this information from him because he knows they can't wrap their mind around it at this point. They're quite suspicious of it, and they're not yet ready to break the news to Lucy, who has been quite ill, we understand. We have reached the juncture that I mentioned previously, where a lot of the pieces are the same and the names are there, but it is not quite the same story. These were the most significant changes to the source material, because you have spouses swapped, Two characters that were betrothed in the source novel are now brother and sister. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think it hurts anything. If you're coming to it the first time and you have no knowledge of that source material, it's not like it doesn't play well. I think back to one of the many episodes we just did for Halloween on our first scares, and you talk about the recording of Charles Dickens' The Signal Man. And as a very, very young child, 
you didn't know the source material, and I think as you put it, you were okay with it. And honestly, that's how I feel about all of these changes too. I am fine with them. As long as it stays sexy, which it does from here on. Once Lucy gets rid of boring old Arthur and Mina, she gets out of her sickbed with cunning on her face, opens the French windows. Her eyes are so bright at this point, almost feverish, I would say. She takes off that crucifix and bares her neck. And lays expectantly on the bed. Goodbye, religion. Hello, Dracula. Now, in the meantime, Van Helsing is at his place brushing up on how to fight Dracula. And Dracula is at Lucy's threshold, as it were. <laughs> this is one of those moments I feel sort of hearkening back to the original, where he brings his cape up and over as he goes to her. So we don't see exactly what he does, and it's another of those dissolves. Well, it turns out Lucy is Dracula's revenge for his bride being killed by Harker. He's not above a vendetta. And as often happens in these things, when people don't understand what's at stake, <laughs> they don't follow the instructions, and Lucy did. Yeah, because once again, somebody's a big dummy, and they leave all the windows open because she begs the nurse that she has to have air, she can't breathe, and therefore gets all the blood sucked out of her. Van Helsing finally reveals the truth of all of this to Arthur and Mina, and at that moment, a policeman returns with their young niece, Tanya, who has said that Lucy has been calling to her, luring her into this graveyard. And now we come to my absolute favorite moment in the whole thing. Tanya is wandering away again into this forest, leading into this graveyard. And she says, Aunt Lucy, you are calling to me. And Lucy, fully undead now, bears her fangs to say, yes, dear, and smiles. And this is when I feel that she is truly herself. This is Carol Marsh, Carol Marsh of Brighton Rock. In all of the moments before, she had her hair completely sort of slicked back, combed back, the nightgown all the way up to the base of her neck. And in her undead state, she appears so much more natural. The makeup is completely different. We see her skin tone. We see that excitement and feverishness again that feels quite natural to me. But because of what Van Helsing has revealed to them, they have been on her trail. I love that you mentioned Brighton Rock, because Lucy does not get a lot of screen time to really establish who she is. So if you know Carol Marsh from other works, you have this association of her being this innocent, this paragon of virtue. And so it makes this corruption that she has undergone that much more significant. And I still think only a corruption in the eyes of her brother. Or Victorian society. But they decide that they must set her free by killing her. Arthur won't hear of this plan of Van Helsing's to use her to lead them back to Dracula. Oh, I think you communicated that quite clearly. Did I? Thank you. So Van Helsing stakes her, she screams and struggles, and then, quote-unquote, she is free, but to me, she's just boring again. They just slicked her hair back, put some makeup on her, and now she has lipstick, and she has a polite and genteel smile on her face of death. Boring. Well, Dracula's not one to not have a plan B. With Lucy gone, he sets his sights on Mina instead. Dracula will steal your girl. I will definitely take Christopher Lee over Michael Gough any day. 
And so while Arthur and Van Helsing are trying to decide what to do next, Dracula is already instituted as plan B. And we see that because when they get back home, Mina is quite excited and looking very bright and covering her neck. She's got a spring in her step that wasn't there before. And she's got some sass back to Arthur as well, which we have not seen at this point. Holmwood gives Mina a cross for protection, and it is revealed that she has been corrupted as well. We should take a minute here and talk about women and their reaction to this Dracula and the sexual power dynamics that are in play with this. How does all of this read to you? Okay, I'm, I feel like I'm maybe trying to thread the needle here a little bit because I am not on the side of, well, every woman wants it, secretly or overtly, but I can also appreciate that we have been set up in this film to have, at least to my mind, two women who are oppressed by the society that they're in. They can only express themselves through their men. And along comes the most dynamic, interesting, towering figure in their lives, and they succumb to him. And also to me, as written, they become much more interesting in death than they are in life. I certainly don't want to sit in that drawing room and do my needlepoint while everyone else is out fighting vampires. I think one of the interesting things about all of this stuff as far as Hammer is concerned, and how much they emphasize the erotic underpinnings of these stories, as written, like you mentioned, it plays much more as dominance and submission. There's much more of a BDSM dynamic going on here than there is anything else, it seems to me. Because there is communicated very specifically an eagerness, especially in Mina's face. This is not at all an unwanted advance. She opens the door to him, just as Lucy had done as well, and in her instance, her hair's down finally. She's wearing that off-the-shoulder nightgown as well to lay bare her assets, as it were, being her neck in this case. Previous victims in vampire films prior to this one always struck me as somnambulists in a fog, no agency whatsoever, but I feel like these women are exercising agency. They actually clearly desire him. I was reading about how Terence Fisher was directing Melissa Stribling, who plays Mina, in how to play that scene in which she is so eager for Dracula, and he said she should imagine that she had one whale of a sexual night, and that it should be shown on her face. And I think that absolutely comes across. That satisfied facial expression says so much. Well, good. Then I am not inventing the subtext. I think there's one more interesting point around that. When Van Helsing is talking about this thrall that Dracula exerts over people. He is talking about this lust for blood, almost like a drug addiction, which I think was fairly progressive for the time as well. But is that also threading that needle of they have agency, but they don't quite? With the addiction issue, I can see an argument being made either way, but those metaphors go way back in the horror tradition, especially with something like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But as far as the sexuality goes, I really feel like Hammer was actually just expressing what the culture at large was feeling. England is notoriously repressed sexually, so maybe they were aware of, hey, let's move this over to Germany where things are a little bit more freewheeling, Weimar-era Berlin and all that. And I feel like maybe this presages the sexual revolution a little bit. With this act that Dracula is about to do to Mina, this is the first time we actually see what takes place. 
because we are looking at his face. But as he goes for the neck, we do cut away, but it's the most involved episode so far. And meanwhile, as they were also trying to use Mina to get to Dracula, they are oblivious to what is going on. They're patrolling outside and they don't know that he is inside. Yes, Dracula has violated the sanctity of their women and the sanctity of their home. Because unbeknownst to them, and we only find this out after the good old hysterical slap, that he's been in the cellar the whole time. He moved that great big old coffin right into their basement. Okay, that's the last one of those, I promise. Okay. So now we are hurtling towards the finish once again. The chase is on. In what might be the last shocking moment of the film for me, we see Dracula burying Mina alive after he hurls her into the grave as if she were garbage. So maybe Dracula's not the most sexually progressive guy? Just use him and throw him away. Yeah, literally throwing dirt in her face. Starting to bury her still half alive, Arthur goes for Mina, then Helsing goes for Dracula inside the castle. I love this final showdown. I know you do, so I'm throwing it over to you. This is where, if you were not fully aware of it already, we realize this is an entirely different animal. This final battle, rather than the traditional staid stalking and staking, plays more like a Douglas Fairbanks scene, something out of an Errol Flynn adventure. It is swashbuckling. They brawl all over the place, and Peter Cushing makes this final running leap from the table to pull down the curtain. It's so exciting. I love that scene. And the studio did not want him to do that stunt on his own, but he insisted. Stand-up guy, that Peter Cushing. He lets the daylight in. Dracula is now trapped because he pulls the old improvised cross with a pair of candlesticks, forcing him into the sunlight where he is reduced to ash. The moment that I love is that as those ashes are crumbling and starting to blow away over that golden zodiac symbol that's so beautiful, we see only his ring is left. All Draculas are are dust in the wind. How many do you think tried and failed before Van Helsing? It just takes the right man for the job, right? Were there centuries of Harkers before that? I always think about those villagers trying to storm the castle and it never seems to work because clearly the people in the village know what's up so their fathers and forefathers must have tried to fight him to the same end so it takes an intellectual rather than a bunch of rubes is that the difference what's the difference an intellectual who can face facts number one who knows what he is up against and who can leap across the table onto curtains to pull those down well before we say the end for now, for Dracula, anything else that you feel like you want to cover about the genre itself or the film? I think we've established fairly well why I chose it. It's not just that milestone film to me. It, along with The Curse of Frankenstein, ushered in the modern horror era. That literally exists as we know it in the 21st century because of Hammer Horror. I first experienced these in order. The Universal films and their sequels, and then this. It was a condensed timeline. I didn't have to wait 27 years in between the first Dracula and this one. But I did get to see the evolution. And so this was a shock. This dynamic, robust, powerful Dracula burst off the screen when I was a very young person, when I saw this the first time. And when viewed in context like that, or even without, I think, it still comes across that way. One thing that drives me crazy with modern audiences when they approach this stuff 
when they're dismissive of a thing because of the age and corniness they think of the conventions of a genre, they take no time to imagine what that would have been like that those people went through that I went through. And even worse, they aren't interested in trying. That's the real cardinal sin to me, a lack of intellectual curiosity. And they don't seem to appreciate the fact that these movies that they think are ultra-modern now, guess what they're going to look like 40 years from now. You know, at the end of the day, I will take my gullibility, I will take my ability to fall into a story over glib charm monsters any day of the week. Because my counter experience to that is going through all of the Lugosi's first, and then fast forwarding into the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. I thought you were going to say Dracula 2000. Uh, no, that came after. Okay. But yes, I have seen that as well. And seeing Christopher Lee and other things, and then coming back to a deeper dive into Hammer work. And I can appreciate each of those things on their own merits. Well, I will certainly give you that willingness to engage. That is a huge thing when it comes to approaching a piece of art. If your default setting is ironic detachment, get out of here with that. I do think it's really interesting, though, that I can appreciate this quote-unquote remake so much more than the original, which is not always the case, or in fact, is very rarely the case. Well, before we finish, I have a couple of questions for you, then. We talk all the time about how horror is ultimately a conservative genre, and how the end game is for everything to be restored to normal. Do you find this to be a primary example of that? Because not only do we have the good versus evil thing, that is writ large on most of these films. But we specifically have the element of sexual decadence is bad. Does that make Van Helsing the world's biggest prude? Whose side do you come down on on this? I still think it's very difficult because they are certainly liberated from what I consider to be an incredibly dull existence. And yet their only outlet then is either death or rebirth and I don't see that rebirth specifically in Mina's case as more liberating, as moving her forward, as, oh, lessons learned here, let's go have some more exciting sex than we have in the past. So yes, it does feel conservative in that way, but I don't think of Van Helsing as being a prig. I'm sorry, nobody who wears a crushed velvet suit like that <laughs> and leaps like that can be that bad. I'm of two minds about it, but I guess in the end, maybe I come down on your side as well. He clearly has an empathetic bedside manner, so he's not completely cold. But he is obsessed with removing this sexual scourge from the community, so it makes him a bit of a pearl clutcher. But, in his favor in this argument, he is not religious. The crucifix, all of those things, those are simply tools to get the job done in a pragmatic fashion. This is what will work, this is what we'll use. In that regard, he is just completely scientific about it. Definitely. In this instance, removing Dracula is not about removing a scourge against God. It's about taking away an evil that has permeated lives and destroyed lives. And also, I think another conservative element, when that attention gets turned on the very, very young child, we've got to draw the line. So he's not faith-based. He's more like a very active health department. He's essentially Richard Widmark in Panic in the Streets. So in that case, who is Zero Mostel in the story? He's the Renfield that's missing. Aha! I thought you were going to say, maybe your favorite Undertaker there. No, because Jack Palance is clearly Dracula. Can you imagine how great Zero Mostel would have been as Renfield? That would have been great. And unfortunately, Tom Waits wasn't available in 1958 either. And the last thing I wanted to ask you, 
for a couple of reasons. One, because it's usually dealt with in a more comic fashion, in films like What We Do in the Shadows, combined with the fact that we just watched John Dealman recently. How much have you given thought to the day-to-day logistics of living through centuries? When I watch vampire movies, I think about this all the time. It is the one facet of it that is not shown on screen very often that I wish more attention was paid to. This is the thing that continually bugs me. Okay, but to quick answer your question, this is what I think about always of life, which is when and how do people go to the bathroom? Now, (laughs) separate of that, though, those stupid goddamn Twilight books, I do not understand why this race of people who are so gorgeous and have amassed so much wealth over all of this time that they've been alive and are so sexy and do it all over the place, why they elect to go back to high school continually. I thought it was really interesting in an interview with a vampire to take Kirsten Dunst's character and leave her as an essentially, I think, a 10-year-old. You have very limited choices out in public at that point. But if you are a gorgeous 20-year-old, why do you decide that you're going to go live through chemistry class over and over and over again? It makes absolutely no sense to me. This is a variation on a theme that I've talked about with you before, but if anything ever happens to you and I become a vampire, I'm buying a Jeep, burning down the house, and Gibson and I are going to travel the back roads, me and my little vampire dog. Same for me. Just substitute out if anything happens to you. Or maybe before that. Who knows? But (laughs) why do you choose to combine yourself to the most boring possible existence when you can just go wreak havoc all over these people? And you can take some double entendres in that phrase as well. Oh, believe me, I was. Well, in addition to recommending a life of debauched undead hedonism, do you have a film recommendation for us? I do. I have chosen The Devil Rides Out from 1968, one of my favorites, including many of the players that we have in Horror of Dracula, directed by Terrence Fisher as well, with Christopher Lee, Charles Gray, Leon Green, and Patrick Mower, about a group of people who are trying to pull their old friend out of a satanic cult, which he has fallen into the clutches of. Written by Richard Matheson, one of your favorites as well. It looks great. It's super duper creepy. I love that veneer of English countryside being corrupted by the satanic cult. It's got all the super beautiful set design, great outdoor work as well. Love it. And a genuinely scary and iconic image of that goat-headed devil. That's the thing that sticks with me. I will never forget that. So how about you? I'm going to follow Hammer's lead and go back to that monster well again and recommend my favorite Hammer adaptation, The Mummy, from just a year later in 1959. And when I say go back to the well again, I mean it. Directed by Terrence Fisher again. Starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee again. Written by Jimmy Sangster again. But the secret weapon in this one, George Pastel, who plays Mohammed Bey. It combines three of the lesser, and I do mean lesser, mummy sequels of Universals, and somehow comes out with a much more superior product. This is my favorite Hammer film, period. I love this one. It, too, is beautiful, and I love the set design. Actually, in both cycles, the Universal and the Hammer, the Mummy is my favorite from each one of those. We have similar innovations that Hammer made to this in relation to the Universal pictures, to the same shocking effect. Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee are obviously apples and oranges, Karloff being the much more sensitive performer, I feel like. 
But in the same way that this Dracula was a huge shock, so was this mummy. This mummy is terrifying and powerful. Not at all this shambling thing that is easily avoided. When this mummy comes for you, he is going to get you. So just be careful when you're fooling around with scrolls of any sort. So as usual, that's two great recommendations. The Devil Rides Out and The Mummy. And that brings us to the end of episode 59. If you haven't taken a look at our Patreon yet, we would certainly appreciate it if you did that. It's at patreon.com slash magiclantern. You can support us at levels starting as low as a dollar a month. For $5 a month, you get access to many episodes that we put out every other Monday. And if you want to be a high roller like our friend Mike Scharf and donate at the $20 level, you can force us to watch Xanadu and then talk about it as a commentary track for an hour and 36 minutes. Let me just clarify that. Anyone else who joins at that level better not demand that we do Xanadu again. You can pick something else. But all kidding aside, we had great fun doing it. Yes, thanks to Michael and thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate it. If you would like to just get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I would just like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who shared the show or has given us feedback since last time. Matteo Boscarol, a new friend from Turkey, Abdullah Ologlu, Jane Sankner, Tim Lego, Travis Trudell, Matt Schlee, Andy Wolverton, Matt Gasteyer, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Tim and Leon at the podcast Yagaday, Aaron and James over at the show Unabashedly Obsessed, Adam and Allie at the podcast So That's How It Ends, and David Delacasa at Screen Week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher that you use, you can find us there. We would certainly appreciate it if you rated and reviewed the show via any of those services. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 